a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with David Schaefer from Kogan. You can very quickly go from being a market darling to a pariah and how everyone's very quick to comment on things that they don't really understand. And uh, there's a lot of spotlight shun on people who are uh, out there in the public markets performing in business. But at the end of the day, the most important fundamental thing is always how is the the business fundamentally performing? The rest ultimately just becomes noise. David Schaefer is a super smart guy. He's an executive director and in many ways a co-founder of the online retail behemoth, Kogan. And just in case you didn't know, Kogan is huge. On their website, you can buy everything from smart speakers to a new pair of Nikes to a CD of the Wiggles playing nursery rhymes. Ten years ago, the business barely existed and now it's worth almost $2 billion. David was in year nine when he was introduced to another kid who would later become his long-term business partner. That kid was Ruslan Kogan. As a kid, the idea that he would build a multi-billion dollar business wasn't necessarily on David's radar, but it probably didn't seem impossible either. After school, David studied law and actuarial studies at the University of Melbourne. When he finished uni, David was at a crossroads. He loved maths and statistics, but didn't want to work as an actuary. So he ended up taking a job as a lawyer at one of Australia's most prestigious law firms, Arnold Block Labor. So you chose uh, ABL, and I imagine you could have basically taken your pick of firms, and traditionally the best students go to the biggest firms, not always, but in most cases, and, and ABL is an un- unusual firm in that it's it's a super highly regarded, but it's a bit smaller, uh, and it's got a great M&A practice and, and a really good tax practice, but but were you tempted to, to look at the bigger firm, the Freehills, the Allisons, the Allens at the time, over the more niche ABL or were you always destined for a smaller firm just because it fitted your personality better? I had the opportunity to do a couple of um, the summer clerkships um, at a couple of firms. And the thing that really um, struck me about ABL is that they throw you in the deep end. So r- rather than having the ability to rely on a whole you know, multi-layered hierarchy, ABL was very much you know, one or two lawyers working with a partner uh, there was a huge amount of responsibility thrust on people early in their careers and there was a sink or swim mentality. And that, that appealed to me because I just I didn't want to waste time uh, working my way through a complex hierarchy of people. I wanted to see if I could thrive early on in my career and I had the opportunity to join ABL in the commercial team, which is w- what I wanted to do with a really young gun partner who was rising fast through his career. And um, I just thought, you know, it's a great opportunity to get stuck into real matters 
with real responsibility very early on in my career. And that's exactly what happened. I, you know, I had a fantastic time at ABL. I'm still good mates with a lot of the people there, ha- have a lot of respect for a, a huge number of people there. It's a great firm. We use them at Kogan for um, a lot of our important legal matters. And, um, you know, I look back on my time at ABL with a lot of great memories and fondness and um, I really thrived in that environment. And I'm guessing are you still the particular general counsel of, of Kogan or, or have you hired in-house legal? We like to outsource all the functions that we don't see as core competitive advantages and <laughs> I'd say that uh, general counsels, um, you know, have, having a competent law practice is not a competitive advantage of Kogan. So, we have a couple of firms that we use for our everyday legal work as sort of like an outsourced general counsel model and we rely on those external firms to sign off on, you know, advertising practices and, you know, odds and ends and commercial contracts, those sorts of things. So, yes, I would be the uh, fundamental person at Kogan responsible for legal matters, but that doesn't mean that I'm doing day-to-day legal work. It's more um, just sure. gen- generally overseeing the external firms and making sure it all functions appropriately. Just going back to your time at ABL, so I think I read that you were one of the quickest ever to reach senior associate level, which is to the level below partner. Uh, and I think at the time you were working on some pretty interesting clients. I think Seek was maybe a client and potentially car sales, some of the really fast-growing online businesses. What what was did you envisage staying at ABL, becoming a partner there? What, what was what did you have in mind at the time? Yeah, I had a great time at ABL. You know, I stayed there for four and a half, five years, and made senior associate. And as you said, had some great transactions and great clients. So car sales, I was very happy and privileged to work on their IPO uh, with Greg Robach and 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 Cam McIntyre, who's the current CEO. Brilliant business that's gone on to be extremely successful. And um, those were the types of clients that, you know, I got to spend time with and learn from as a young lawyer. And um, it was hugely beneficial to me just seeing how these uh, entrepreneurs and executives operated. I'd say if I rewound uh, to the early stages in my career at ABL, um, yes, I would have envisaged staying on and becoming a partner. Um, that was the sort of track I was on. Uh, there was no reason to really leave. I, I had a uh, fantastic relationship with the firm and the partners and um, really enjoyed the work and was good at it. So uh, I think that would, would have been the natural course to go on and, and become a partner at ABL uh, had I not decided to um, take a punt in business. And you know, it's interesting. Um, at that at that stage in my life, you know, I was sort of pretty young, mid twenties, uh, without any dependents, without any mortgage, and it was probably a, a good opportune time to take a punt in business. That doesn't mean that you know, if you rewound and you, you were at a later stage in your career and had dependents and had mortgages and 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 things like that, that um, I would have made the same decision necessarily. Uh, it was just, you know, at the right time in my own life to, to sort of take that punt. It's right about now when David's old school friend, Rosalind Kogan, comes back into the story. While David was working at Arnold Block Liebler, Rosalind was quietly importing TVs from China and selling them on eBay. Kogan.com was gathering momentum, 
and Rosalind asked David to join the business as a partner. But David said no. He figured he didn't study for five years to drop it all and start selling televisions. But Rosalind was persistent, and after a few months, David gave up his thriving legal career and officially joined Rosalind in late 2010. David figured he was only young once. It was a great opportunity to see if he had what it took to survive in business. And if it didn't work out, in a couple of years, he could always jump ship and do something else. And how big was was the business at the time that you officially joined? Uh, I think it was doing about $10 million of revenue um, with, I don't know, around about half a dozen, maybe 10 staff. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was primarily a private, well, it was entirely a private label business. So focusing on TVs, digital photo frames, Blu-ray players, products like that. At the time, we called ourselves a, a manufacturer and designer of consumer electronics. That's, that, that's what sort of was the, the business's raison d'etre at the time. And, you know, it had a lot of promise. You know, there were, it, it was already creating a bit of a buzz, you know, in, in sort of uh, potentially releasing an Android phone, which was a really exciting product at the time. And also, you know, the TV, the TV business was uh, already showing a lot of promise in manufacturing and importing TVs and selling them directly online. So uh, I'd say it was a small business. Uh, it had a lot of potential. It, you know, it had, it had um, great people in the business already at that time, uh, being Ruslan and, you know, a few staff that are still with us today. And it had a lot of opportunity. And you guys, I imagine when you joined, you're turning over $10 million. Was the business profitable at the time? So, I mean, as with all startup businesses, you know, th- there are some good months, there are some bad months, you know, some months you're uh, raising a champagne glass and the next month <laughs> you're tearing your hair out and losing sleep. The business has been self-funded from the outset. So, you know, other than a little bit of bank debt along the way, which is not that easy to attain as a startup, uh, yeah. the, the business has had to make money from day one. So uh, from day one, we've had to make money to pay for not only our own lives, but to pay for wages, electricity, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of businesses today are focused on getting to the next capital raising round and see, see it as a, an achievement to get a high valuation and get to the next round and, and justify the multiple that they're trading on whether that be a multiple of revenue or gross profit, but very rarely earnings. Um, so the business was making money at the time, but the real challenge was how do you scale it? Because private label manufacturing is a hugely capital-intensive exercise, uh, especially as a small business. When you're dealing with China, you have to pay up front, and then you have to import product, you have to warehouse it, you have to sell it and monetize it over time. So you have, you're paying money on day one to China and then you're receiving money from your customers you know, up to 180 days later, maybe even longer in some cases. So it requires a lot of capital to grow and solving the cash flow cycle of the business and creating new revenue streams to inject cash flow into the business was a significant challenge to, to try and uh, grow the business and scale up. How did you guys fund the business? You, didn't, you never raised money, as you said, and, and you're only making profit off, off what you're selling. How did you guys literally generate the cash to be able to keep growing the business? 
So uh, there were a few things that we did over the years, but you know, always front of mind was growing the business through better cash flows and through expanded product selection and creating win-wins. So over time, we tried variously different, method- different um, methodologies of pre-selling. So you might recall years and years ago, we invented a, a product called Live Price. The price goes up. And uh, in front of your eyes as a consumer, and you pay a higher price the closer you get to product arrival. So if you're willing to wait three, four, five weeks to receive your TV, you get a significant discount and you're effectively funding the production of those TVs. That was an interesting product on our website, but ultimately a little bit confusing to consumers who didn't understand why prices were growing, were, you know, increasing or it was just, it was just, too non-consumer friendly. The thing that really made a difference to us in terms of cash flow generation was expanding the different services and product offerings of the business. So when we were 100% private label, it meant that all of our inventory needed to be purchased from, from the Chinese manufacturers. It all needed to be imported and all needed to be sold after we brought it into Australian warehouses when we sort of really looked at ourselves and we thought, okay, what is the business's competitive advantage? What does it need? What does it bring to the table? We, we sort of refashioned ourselves as a retailer first and foremost rather than a consumer electronics manufacturer and designer. And what that meant is that if, we, if we're a retailer, why can't we offer third-party goods? And the third-party branded goods that we started to offer like your Samsungs, Apples, those sorts of products, didn't require the cash flow investment that private label did. So we would effectively receive orders from consumers through the website prior to payment to our suppliers, which created a better cash flow cycle into the business. So every day we'd be making gross profit from uh, inventory that we didn't yet hold. And that free cash flow that was generated through the third-party branded product side of the business could then be injected into the private label side of the business to grow inventory. So we started to rapidly grow our inventory levels after uh, we had significant cash flow generation through third-party branded product sales and it created a virtuous cycle whereby we would sell an iPhone or a Samsung phone uh, would often offer uh, private label cases and cables and products like that to go with it, but we would make free cash flow from the iPhone sale or the Samsung sale, which could then be invested into private label inventory. And uh, it also brought a whole heap of new consumers to the website because not everybody is in the market for a Kogan Agora phone or a Kogan TV. Some people want your iPhones and Samsung phones. So it also expanded the universe of potential customers a lot more broadly. And um, that was one method that we used for cash flow generation sort of from 2011 onwards. And then we added uh, additional services elements into the business over, over the years, which again injected a lot of cash flow into the business, all with a mindset to continually reinvesting the cash flow that was generated by these new businesses into private label growth. And, you know, up up until the time we listed, we hadn't raised any external capital and had built a a sizable business 
purely through reinvesting those free cash flows. When you talk about building the third-party curated marketplace, I guess, you make it sound pretty easy. I imagine at the time it probably wasn't that it, you were you weren't Maya, David Jones, JB Hi-Fi, you're an online-only business with with which is still pretty new. Was it easier to get the likes of Samsung and Sony and those guys to give you product to sell on the site? So we looked at the supply chain of the third-party branded goods and we thought, you know, how should this be done? Let, let's put to the side how things are typically done by our competitors. Is there a better way of doing this? And we thought to ourselves how, you know, at the time when you went traveling as an Australian through Hong Kong, through the US, a lot of people would ask you first and foremost, what did you buy rather than what did you see? Uh, You know, if if you were traveling through Hong Kong, people would say, oh, can you pick me up a camera or can you pick me up a new gadget uh, in Hong Kong airport? Because Aussies at the time were used to being ripped off on consumer electronics. Mm. And we looked at the price that you can get an iPhone, a Samsung phone, Nikon camera, Canon in Hong Kong versus Australia, and we realized there was a significant price gap. So we thought if we go higher up the supply chain and buy in Hong Kong in the US and then sell into Australia or even sell globally, it would give us a significant price advantage over the domestic players in Australia who were operating in a totally different pricing market to the global market. And in 2011, we were able to launch with a decent range of the top selling products in the world offering significant price advantages to Aussie consumers uh, simply by changing the supply chain, not going directly to uh, local Samsung and local Apple and Canon and Nikon, but at the time we were buying from distributors all over the world and we were asking them to bid on a daily basis to fulfill our orders. And that gave us a globally competitive price every day and we could deliver the price savings available through that model directly to the consumers. Wouldn't that annoy the local distributors, whether that Samsung or Apple, wouldn't they say, hold on, uh, David and Rosalind, you, you guys have to buy through our Australian supplier. You can't go through our Hong Kong supplier. Absolutely. It annoyed them at the time. And, and for, for many years, we were considered a pest among um, a lot of these <laughs> brands because we were circumventing their local supply chains. And, you know, that was perfectly comfortable territory for us because we were already pests for going directly to the contract manufacturers uh, for TVs and and phones and Blu-ray players and other things. But at the t- you know throughout Kogan's existence, our fundamental duty has always been to our customer, not to our suppliers. It's always been about what can we do to engineer a better solution for consumers rather than to do the right thing by other stakeholders in the supply chain. And um, over time, uh, I think we've been a hugely important player in bridging the gap between Australian retail prices on many of these products and global prices. So today, if you look at the Kogan business, we cooperate directly with Samsung and we cooperate Mm. directly with a lot of camera manufacturers. And, and that's simply because we're able today to deliver our consumers globally competitive prices while also maintaining very strong partnerships with the likes of Samsung. Like lots of growing businesses, Kogan looks super successful from the outside, but inside, 
the business wasn't always smooth sailing. As the business expanded, so too did Ruslan and David's appetite for growth. They started by adding third-party brands to their catalogue, which was a massive win. And the next bet was selling services, rather than just stuff. They were already selling the handsets, so why not sell the mobile phone plans as well? It was a great idea, but forces outside their control meant it didn't get off to the most successful start. So just on, uh, you mentioned your, your mobile phone business, which has turned out to be one of the great, the great businesses we've seen created by any Australian business in the last decade, but it wasn't all smooth sailing. So I think the, your first partnership was with a business called ISP1, and they were, the, I think, the only Telstra re, sort of wholesaler. So you guys did a deal with ISP1, but unfortunately ISP1 themselves uh, collapsed, and you guys had the relationship with the customer. I think you had hundreds of thousands or maybe 100,000 customers using Kogan Mobile, but your supplier suddenly went under. So can you talk to me a bit about so what happened there and, and how you guys cope with such a potentially calamity for a business of, of, of your size at the time? It, it was one of the great learning experiences in my business career um, and a hugely valuable lesson that went on to allow us to um, form more solid foundations in, in future businesses. So what happened effectively is in late 2012, uh, we decided to make an asymmetric bet in the mobile phone business. So we want, we started Kogan Mobile. We thought it's a great opportunity to leverage our customer base, to leverage our brand uh, effectively to, to sell, at the time, Telstra prepaid. Now, Telstra prepaid was only offered on a wholesale basis at the time through their sole distributor, ISP1. ISP1 uh, was a company that had a platform that enabled you to onboard onto the Telstra network and recharge and effectively operate an MVNO, a mobile virtual network operation. They, we, were, we were the first customer of ISP1 onto the Telstra 3G prepaid platform and it was a hugely successful operation in one sense. I mean, we put on something in the order of 100,000, 150,000 customers in the space of six months. So we launched in I think it was December 2012, and you know, within six months, we had between 100 and 150,000 active customers. How much are you making from each customer, roughly? So we were operating off single-digit margins, but effectively the deal that we structured with ISP1, which ultimately became one of the reasons for ISP1's undoing, was that we purchased from ISP1 unlimited talk, unlimited text, and a, a certain amount of gigabytes for our customers. So I think it was six gigabytes at the time. Mm. And we purchased it for, for a certain price. We then added a single-digit margin to that and sold it to customers on a, a prepaid contract. So what we didn't know at the time, and you know, ISP1 was not able to share with us due to confidentiality obligations, was what was the soundness of their upstream uh, relationship with Telstra. And what we subsequently found out after ISP1 became unwound was that ISP1 was purchasing from Telstra on a variable basis. So they were purchasing data by the megabyte and talk by the minute and SMSs by the SMS. Uh, they weren't purchasing unlimited contracts from Telstra and then reselling to us with a, mar- with a known margin. They were taking a huge bet on packaging it up 
to sell to us on an unlimited basis, but buying on a variable basis. And what that meant was that there was huge business risk sitting in ISP1. So uh, we paid ISP1 on time, we delivered all of our obligations to ISP1, but ultimately ISP1 was selling to Kogan at a massive loss from its wholesale cost uh, to Telstra. And, and Telstra ultimately sued ISP1 and put them into administration and liquidation. And, and when that happened, we got a notification from, from Telstra and from ISP1 that, and, the, and the liquidators at the time that uh, the Kogan mobile business uh, is going to be turned off by Telstra on a certain uh, notice period and that effectively all of our customers would be turned off and we needed to transition them somewhere else or have some sort of arrangement with them. What we ended up doing was taking our, call it 150,000 customers, refunding every single customer the full pro rata remaining balance of their prepaid contract, which in some cases ran to 365 days. We had to develop a, a platform and system to process 150,000 refunds and to calculate the residual entitlement to each of them really quickly, which we did. We, I think we processed 150,000 refunds in, in two weeks. And we had to arrange beneficial deals for those customers to move on to an alternate network. And customers in the main were not hugely disadvantaged. They got a, a full refund. And they had to do a SIM swap, but they got a re very pre preferential deal on an alternate network and uh, in the main were not that disadvantaged. But um, it was a hugely worrying time for the business because uh, there were huge sums of money flowing out and um, obviously maintaining services and maintaining our brand in the face of the decline of one of our business units could have put the business's brand in jeopardy. How close did you come financially at that time? So the way that we structured the business with ISP1, and which was uh, a very clever decision in retrospect, but even at the time we structured it with this in mind, was that we were holding the consumer funds and we would only remit to ISP1 what we owed them in arrears. So it wasn't ISP1 that was holding the money paid by consumers, but it was Kogan. If ISP1 had been holding the money paid by consumers, it could have really put us out of business because they would have still become insolvent uh, because yeah. whatever the consumers paid would not have been enough to pay the Telstra bills. But at the same time, Kogan would not have had the, the, the funds available to offer refunds of the remaining entitlements to consumers. So we were not in financial jeopardy at the time. We were just, you know, suffering a situation that was very bad for the brand and we had to try and mitigate all of the consumer adverse impacts as much as possible to protect the consumers, to protect the brand, to protect um, our longevity as a company. But one of the things that it taught us, that whole episode, was that in any commercial situation of any significant importance, there needs to be a neck to strangle. Ultimately, <laughs> ISP1 was not a neck worth strangling. It was a business yeah. that was ultimately put out of business by Telstra. It was not a sound financial uh, body uh, in its own right. So when we, when we realized that, hey, Kogan Mobile has huge potential because we, we managed to bring so many customers onto a new network so quickly, 
our next thought was it's only a valuable uh, uh, company and it's only got got legs as a, as a long-term operation if we're partnering directly with the person that owns the network. Because if you're partnering with the person who owns the network, then you know that there's much less counterparty risk. That, it, you know, in the case of Vodafone, who we ultimately struck the deal with for, to launch Kogan Mobile round two, Vodafone owns the network. So mm. they have the capacity to fulfill on the underlying arrangement offered to customers and they are a sound financial institution. In, they've got a sound balance sheet. They've got, a, they've got the assets required to deliver on their contracts. And w- we totally recut the entire business model in launching Kogan Mobile version two. Rather than taking the risk in Kogan, so rather than Kogan entering into an agreement with the end consumer and then having its own upstream supply agreements with ISP1 or Telstra and effectively asking consumers to trust Kogan, what we ultimately decided to do in structuring Kogan Mobile version 2 was to effectively focus on what we know how to do and what we're good at, which is branding, customer generation, marketing, uh, negotiating great deals for our customers, and then ask the underlying owner of the capital asset, in, in, in this case being Vodafone, to focus on what they know how to do, which is operating and running the network. So the way Kogan Mobile is structured today is that Vodafone is ultimately the counterparty to the consumer's contract. So it's Vodafone that has the principal obligation of supplying the deal to the consumers and they have the capacity to do it because they own the network. Kogan's participation in the model is effectively a franchising slash licensing arrangement whereby Kogan Mobile is operated by Vodafone with Kogan's assistant and under Kogan's brand licensing and and with Kogan's marketing engine powering the operation of the business, but Vodafone actually owes the customer obligations. So that way, Kogan is not effectively at risk anymore in the same way as it was under the ISP1 Telstra model. It looks like one of the the great strengths you guys have is not only operational excellence, but the ability to to spot opportunities and do these mini pivots within your business or mini expansions. And how much do you put that down to just your personality versus the structure you guys have run? Certainly pre-public listing, I think you, Ruslan was around two-thirds, you were around one-third ownership. How did you guys make these calls to go into curated marketplace, to go into mobile, which were great calls. But how, how, how long was the decision process? Do you guys sit around a table and just go, let's do it? How did it work? We've always had a great decision-making process because there's a lot of mutual respect. And I think that uh, we've always run the business as if we are 100% owners. So, you know, before IPOing, uh, we were 100% owners and even after IPOing, every decision we've made in the business would have been the same decision as if we, w- you know, a- as we would have made if, if we continued to be 100% owners. And when you're 100% owner, your first and foremost front of mind question is what is the risk involved in this transaction? So we're prepared to make a series of, of bets. We're prepared to try new things provided that we're not putting the main baby at risk. So if we can make bets with asymmetric payoff, 
then we're happy to do it. And that's why we've made a lot of bets over, t- over time. You know, after we've launched Kogan Mobile, we've also launched Kogan Internet, Kogan Insurance, Kogan Money, Kogan Travel, Kogan Credit Cards. We've also expanded private label rapidly. Uh, we've expanded internationally. But everything that we do is measured. You know, it's all about what is the risk? What are we putting at risk here? And what's the potential reward? And that's how we think about the business and business decisions as business owners. We're never uh, putting the core business at risk at any point in time. And, and what is the core business has changed over time. But um, we're always looking at what's the downside here? What's the upside? Is there an asymmetric opportunity? Um, and can this become a scalable large business in time? The decision-making process is very simple. You know, if both of us can, can look at a situation and see that it satisfies those core things, it, there's, a, there's a better than even chance that we'll end up doing it. And, uh, you know, I could list for you 100 things right now that were tried and failed, but none of them has put the business out of business because they're all uh, limiting the downside exposure associated with each of these bets. Kogan went public in July 2016, but not long after they listed, Kogan's share price dropped from $1.80 to $1.30 per share. They had no idea what was going on. Luckily, there are a couple of people on their board who told them to focus on the business and not on the share price. And so they did. And in their first year as a publicly listed company, they ended up delivering double what they predicted their EBITDA was going to be in their prospectus. An EBITDA is an accounting term that means earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. For a newly listed company, this was incredible. A year after they listed, their share price finally rose above the issue price and continued to grow. Since listing in 2016, David and Ruslan have continued to ride the peaks and troughs that come with being co-founders of a publicly listed company. We passed our four-year milestone as a listed company this week. And um, it's been one hell of a journey. Like we've learned a lot about how the public markets work and, you know, how you can very quickly go from being a market darling to a pariah um, and how everyone's very quick to comment on things that they don't really understand. And uh, there's a lot of... um, spotlight shun on people who are uh, out there in the public markets performing in business. But at the end of the day, the most important fundamental thing is always how is the fund- the business fundamentally performing? What is the growth path ahead for the business? What are the fundamentals of your unit costs? If you can, if you can stay close to business fundamentals, the rest ultimately just becomes noise. And it's very noisy at times. It, it's hugely distracting at times. But, you know, that counsel that Greg and Harry gave us in 2016 to just focus on the business fundamentals will always ring true. In the long term, the market, as we've seen in respect of the Kogan share price, is a weighing machine. So it doesn't matter what happens in the short term, the fact that it's a voting machine. We listed in July 2016 and, you know, we had in their numbers from FY16 of 2.9 million of EBITDA. And when, you know, we're shortly going to deliver our FY20 uh, earnings and brokers are expecting that to be roughly in the vicinity of $45 million of EBITDA. <laughs> so the, the share price performance of Kogan has been fundamentally driven by business performance. 
you know, ultimately we've become a lot more profitable as an organization and we've delivered uh, significant business performance for shareholders, which has resulted in share price performance. And while, while your, your EBITDA performance has been unbelievable in the last four years and, you're, and it's, as you said, grown from sort of two to 45 million, which is incredible, your share price as said, has been very much a voting machine up and down. And when you went for that run from $1.35 to I think you hit almost or maybe hit $10 a couple of years later, and not long after that, uh, you and Ruslan sold what was actually a fairly small package of shares to get some liquidity because you guys didn't have that much that much cash and you had a lot invested in this business. And not long after, the share price, for whatever reason, dropped a bit and obviously has since recovered, but at the time it dropped. And you guys copped a fair bit of heat for, for that. Uh, how, I guess in hindsight, do you think, would you have handled it differently now or, or do you sort of stand by everything you did and, and I guess I've been proven right in the end? It's a tough one because the Australian market is hugely sensitive to founder sell downs. It attracts a lot of noise in Australia and the type of noise that you don't see in the US. In the US, people celebrate founders making a lot of money for themselves and for share market investors and everyone else. And there's a view that, um, you know, that it's, it's an aspirational quality. You know, people look up to great businessmen in the US and all of the value that they've created for themselves and for others, both customers and shareholders. In Australia, especially in the business press, there's a tone of, I'd say, tall poppy syndrome to a degree. Uh, Not everyone, but, you know, I'd say there's definitely huge sensitivity to founder sell-downs. There's street talk articles as soon as there's any whiff of those sorts of things. Our financial press has become a bit of a gossip column for (laughs) for, uh, gossip that occurs in the financial world rather than focusing on business fundamentals. So I'd say, yes, I mean, you you have to have that in mind and maybe we we did not have it in mind along the way, uh, but you have to be cognizant of the fact that in Australia, um, when founders make uh, a sell down or, or undertake any other corporate action, it, atta- it attracts a huge amount of gossip. If you look at the performance of the Kogan business since listing, every year we've delivered growth in revenue, growth in gross profit, growth in EBITDA. You know, the, the, the business has performed pretty well consistently over four years. Yes, there have been periods of faster growth and periods of slower growth, as there are in any business. But o- over time, we've delivered consistent growth in earnings, in revenue, in GP. Uh, we've consistently expanded the breadth of the business into new product lines, new categories. We've, we've since added the Kogan marketplace and, and lots of new services. So we've been focused on business performance over four years. And uh, as a result of that focus, the business has performed exceptionally well. Uh, and that's ultimately led to the share price performance. But you're right, in the short term, there's been huge voting swings in the share price on a short-term basis, which have ultimately recovered as the business fundamentals um, are delivered. A lot more than recovered. Looking at your share price as we, as, we, as we record this podcast, your market capitalization is an incredible $1.6 billion, in fact, over $1.6 billion, which for an Australian e-commerce business is, is almost unthinkable. Uh, and no doubt, a lot of it's due to the products you've launched from marketplace to services, but you've obviously also benefited from the accelerant that's been COVID-19. How much 
how much benefit do you think you guys have, have had from it and how short-term versus long-term do you think this shift to online has become? My, my view is that Australia has been lagging the US, UK, Germany, China in e-commerce penetration consistently over my entire time in e-commerce. So when we were discussing business fundamentals back in 2010, 2011, I think e-commerce penetration at the time in Australia was around about 3% and the the US was 7 or 8%. And pre-COVID in Australia, uh, we were at about 8% and the US was almost 20% or, you know, uh, in that vicinity. So we've been we've been on a growth trajectory in terms of e-commerce penetration in Australia, but consistently lagged the US. So there's always been a significant runway ahead for e-commerce growth. And I think what's effectively happened due to COVID is that we've grown what would otherwise have taken maybe three to five years of e-commerce penetration in the space of three months. So more people are ordering from home, more people are mindful of the time, the expense and the risk of shopping uh, in high streets and shopping malls. And also there are other themes that are occurring in retail like a reversion to more of a less discretionary retail. So rather than walking through the shopping mall and getting things you don't really need that are high margin gadgets or gizmos or, or um, accessories for your family, people are sitting at home and they're ordering what they actually need online, sort of a less discretionary slant to retail, things like bread makers and home gym equipment, home office equipment, recreational things for the kids. Th- those sorts of products are in huge demand and that's because people are focused on what they actually need to make their, ha- their homes and their lives better. And those are the sorts of the products that we, that we sell in the main. So, look, I think that once people start shopping online for the first time, there's every chance that they come online the second and third time they're making a similar product choice. So, very rarely do you see someone who's never shopped online before start shopping online and then never shop online again. You know, once you've got someone, they're going to come back for similar types of purchasing. And also, when people start shopping online in new categories, Typically, they'll continue buying those categories online. So we've seen a huge number of people who didn't previously shop online for certain types of products. So they might have shopped for fashion only or for iPhones or whatever only, uh, and now they're shopping for a much broader set of products online. Once they're starting to shop online for more categories of products, it becomes a self-fulfilling thing and a virtuous cycle whereby, okay, they they have a good experience with that product and then they keep looking more and more and more. So I can't see penetration going back. I think certainly once COVID's done and dusted and and life returns to somewhat of a normal uh, atmosphere, um, you're you're going to see a slowing of growth of e-commerce penetration but it's not going to go backwards to what it was previously Mm. simply because once people have experienced the benefits of shopping online, the the ease with which they can order from their their home, from their laptop sitting on the couch, they're going to be thinking about doing that again the next time they shop for similar types of products. And you guys have this incredible story, effectively winning in one of the toughest markets in Australia, online e-commerce. And you're now two of the, certainly the richest people under 40 in Australia and, and have probably more money than 
anybody you, you ever would have expected. How do you guys maintain the hunger and the drive every day when you've already achieved so much? You know, because you guys are now what, 38, 37, 38 now. Is there, a, is there an end game? Do you guys, will you guys do this for the rest of your life? How do you, how do you keep driving so hard? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, we love the business. We love what we're doing in the business. It still feels like a family business in some respects. Um, you know, we still run it in the same way we ran it as, as we did when we owned 100% of the business. Most of the staff, especially the senior staff who are with us today, were the same people who were with us when we were 100% privately owned. Those people are like family, you know, they're, they're some of our closest friends. We've got deep, strong relationships with people across our management team and, and, uh, and employee base. And we ultimately love the challenge of doing what we're doing. You know, we wake up every morning and we say, how, what, what else can we do differently? How can we deliver more value? Where's there's an opportunity, where is there an opportunity to get an asymmetric return? And now, you know, with our recent capital raise in Kogan, for the first time, we've got an opportunity to think about business not only in terms of organically what can we do, how can we build something from nothing, which is what we've done for the last 10 years, you know, basically through a series of asymmetric bets and a lot of hard work and a lot of smarts along the way, we've effectively built something from nothing. Now we have a pile of, of investor funds that they've entrusted to us and we have something there what can we do with something now that we have something, you know, that we have cash that we have available to think about acquisitions or how, you know, how to grow um, in, in other ways that are somewhat inorganic, uh, which adds a whole new flavour to what it means to run a business and, and that's particularly exciting at the moment. Hogan's market value has come off its all-time highs of almost $2.5 billion, but the business is still valued at an incredible $1.5 billion. Last year, they grew their active customers by an incredible 76% to more than 3 million people. That means almost one in every five Australian adults bought something from Kogan in the last year. And that was David Schaefer, COO and CFO of Kogan.com. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.